Well, a few weeks ago, in the book of Acts, we saw a passage uh, where there were two visions, Acts chapter 10. Two visions, one given to the God-fearing Gentile centurion, Cornelius, right? The other given to the Jewish apostle Peter. And we saw how God had providentially prepared both men for the meeting, really the momentous meeting, which is now underway in Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house. So, here in Acts 10, we're at a major turning point in the history of the church. It's kind of a seam. And it's a turning point in the history of the world. Cornelius has assembled a house of friends, we're told, and close relatives. And as he puts it to Peter, just prior to our text this morning, he says this to Peter. We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So the stage is set then, and this is the the momentous nature of the moment. The stage is set for the first public proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what we're looking at here today in Acts chapter 10. So we'll make two points about this, the Word and the Spirit. You can find them on page 5, the outline on page 5. The Word and the Spirit. So first the Word. Peter opens his mouth and he says this. And he's, it's taken him a little while, but he's come to this conviction. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now, this can mean a number of things, right? In the Old Testament, it often means that God's an impartial judge. He's impartial in judgment. But even there, right, even there, this impartiality is rooted, and this might not be, you know, instinctual for us, right? It's rooted in the fact that God is the God of all, right? Not just the God of the Jews. He's not just a local, ethnic, tribal deity like all the other gods in the ancient Near East. So, for example, for example, Deuteronomy 10, which was our call to worship. If you look at the call to worship, it's from Deuteronomy 10. It says this, Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven, and the heavens of heavens, and the earth, and all that is within them. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Right, so... Moses is saying here, God is the universal Lord of heaven and earth. And then the text continues like this. He's the great God, the mighty God, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Universal lordship means impartiality. So the prophet Zechariah, for example, speaks of the latter days, and he says this. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. That's somewhat surprising. Isn't God always been one? But the manifestation of God's oneness is that he's king over all the earth. For example, in Romans, in the New Testament, Romans 3, Paul says this. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the law. You think, oh, we all believe that, right? We were justified by faith apart from the law. Here's, how, here's Paul's argument for this. Or is God the God of the Jews only? 
Right? If, you, if you had to be justified by some form of Torah keeping, then only Jews could be justified. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, Paul says, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Since God is one who will justify by faith the circumcised and the uncircumcised. So, one God who is one means one way of salvation. It's in the Torah, it's in the prophets, it's in the apostles. And Peter is now clued into this. What's happening is Peter says, God shows no partiality. And that means the time has arrived to tear down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. That's the most basic division in history. The division between Jew and Gentile. There's all kinds of other divisions, but they sort of sit on top or downstream from that one. And the time has come to tear down the dividing wall. Some of you are old enough to remember Reagan's famous speech, right? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's a significant moment in the history of the West. This is much more significant than that. This tearing down of the wall between Gentiles and Jews. The things that separated Israel from the Gentiles, the ceremonial law, the food laws and the like, they're now being done away with. Peter's recognizing this. As the book of Hebrews says, they're growing obsolete. Now, again, this language means then for us, there's no racial barrier to salvation. Right? You can have union and communion with the triune God, and it's not determined by external criteria or by ethnicity. By grace and not by race. Right? By grace and not by race. Now, Peter's already said some things in the book of Acts that entailed this. Let's go all the way back to chapter 2, to Pentecost, the first Pentecost. He said, the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. I mean, think about that. The Spirit is the ruach, the, the breath. The Spirit is God of God. The Spirit makes you the, the assembly of Israel, the dwelling place of Yahweh. That Spirit's going to be poured out on all flesh. Right? And then back in chapter 4, he said, Christ is building a new, a cosmic temple. So the, the fulfillment of all these promises in Jesus Christ, yes, it fulfills the old covenant, but it far transcends and surpasses and exceeds it. Peter has already said there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name, not in Israel, but there's no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. So we live in this era. The people of God are being drawn not only from Israel, but from the nations. And we're saved the same way, by the same Christ, through the same gospel, to the same ends. But this is all kind of new for Peter. No partiality means, Peter continues in the text, that in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is acceptable or does what is right is acceptable to him. That's what he says about Cornelius. Now, he doesn't mean that Cornelius is acceptable because he's a devout and pious man. It's not what the text means. It's not a statement. 
there about salvation by good works. How could it be? I mean, think about it. One commentator put it this way. If Cornelius's honest pagan convictions had been sufficient, why did he seek the synagogue? And if the synagogue had been sufficient, why is Peter there? And Peter will shortly declare that Cornelius needs to believe and to receive the forgiveness of his sins through Jesus Christ. Right? So Cornelius, here's the news. Cornelius does not need to become a Jew. But he most definitely needs to become a Christian. So, the point here is that God is indifferent. This is this impartiality. With respect to salvation, with respect to spiritual communion, with respect to your inheritance, God is indifferent of nations. In every nation, every nation, there's now a way to acceptance with God. And this goes back, not only to Abraham, right? What did God tell Abraham when he first called him? In you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But you you can find this international sentiment in the prophets. And to the extent that Peter knew the Old Testament, he would have had some inkling of this. Listen to this remarkable passage from Amos chapter 9. He says, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? I don't think they would think that's a compliment. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? In other words, yeah, I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought all people up out of every place. It's not denying that Israel has a unique and unrepeatable role, but it's an affirmation of God to his people saying, I'm the Lord of the Philistines. I'm the Lord of the Cushites. I'm the Lord of the Egyptians. I govern and guide all the nations. And the prophets foresee this day. You can see this, for example, in Isaiah 19, where all the nations are assembled as the people of God. So now I know that uh, this may be ho-hum stuff for us now. But... I'm trying to get you to see it afresh. I mean, the ho-hum stuff is ho-hum precisely because it's so radically and indelibly changed the way we think about the covenant people of God. We can't even imagine another world than this. The ho-hum stuff, by the way, it's always the best stuff. It's like it's always the most important stuff. Like, what's ho-hum as you're moving around through your life here? Things like, well, uh, the rule of law. The separation of powers. An independent judiciary, trial by jury, human dignity and basic human rights. That stuff's unseen to you because you can't even imagine the world where those are not the most important things. And this stuff is monumentally important, but it tends to become unseen by us because we can't imagine it to be other now that it's happened. But Paul's whole apostleship, you know, who's lurking in the shadows here, right? You can imagine... You know, if this was a play, and you were at the second half of Acts 10, there'd be a guy named Saul of Tarsus off on the side in the shadows waiting to take the stage. And his, the large role that he's going to have in the second half of the book of Acts, in a, really a world-shaping role, right, is about fleshing out, and it's about expanding what we are witnessing right here. Right? This mystery, Paul would later write, 
hidden for ages and generations, is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's remarkable. If you ask this question, what is the mystery in the New Testament? When the New Testament speaks of the mystery, hidden but now revealed, what is it talking of? It's talking about this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, all according to God's eternal plan. Now, what's remarkable, among other things in this text, is that Peter is preaching the gospel here to a Gentile audience. And he preaches the exact same message, thematically, content-wise, that he preached at Pentecost to a Jewish audience. So verse 36, he says this, as, as to the word that he sent to Israel. Right, The word does go originally to Israel, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. He sent the word to Israel, notice this, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, the good news. And the good news is this, peace with God, reconciliation, shalom, peace with God through Jesus Christ. You have that. It's an objective reality. It will become a subjective reality in your life, but the important thing to get is Jesus Christ has effected shalom or reconciliation with God. This peace that Jesus has wrought in his obedience and in his cross ultimately issues in the cessation of wars to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He burns the spear. He makes wars to cease till the ends of the earth. Be still and know. I am the Lord. I will be exalted over the earth. I will be exalted among the nations. Shalom shall prevail. Peace and reconciliation prevail, first with us, before God, before his judgment. This is the good news. Peace with God, reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 52, we heard in the Old Testament lesson, says this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Right? Who says to Zion, your God reigns. This theme of peace is woven through the prophets. Isaiah 57, a little bit later, Isaiah says this, Peace, peace, to the far and to the near. And Paul picks this up in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2 he says this, Jesus came and he preached peace to you who were far off, that's us, most of us, Gentiles, and peace to you who were near, to the Jews. So this is the word of peace, Peter saying, sent to Israel, to those who are near. And now it's being sent to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, to those who are far off. But it's the same word. It's the same gospel. It's the gospel of peace and harmony and communion with God. And then at the end of verse 36, there's a real important little parenthetical statement. Preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ Then in parentheses, he is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. The whole passage rests on that little phrase. That's the first thing I want you to remember today. Jesus is Lord of all. Lord of all nations, all people. Not just of Jews, not just of Israel, but Lord of all. 
Paul says this about this theme in Romans 10. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. This is the gospel. And Peter continues preaching the gospel here. That's what he's doing. He said, and notice this. The gospel includes, it includes Christ's holy, powerful life and ministry. But you really can't preach the gospel well or fully just focusing on the end of Jesus' life. you got to go back to the beginning, and of course, ultimately, you have to go back to Israel and back to Adam. But Peter includes his life, not just the culminating events. You know, he says, Peter, in the, you know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John. That's where he starts, right? He starts with Jesus' public ministry. And again, he says, he's talking to a Gentile audience, right? Notice this. He says, you know what happened. It's public knowledge, even to you Gentiles. Like, everybody knows what happened here. We know where this stuff happened. We know when it happened. He goes on to say that Jesus was baptized by John, and he was anointed with the Spirit and power. And we heard Jesus speak about that in his inaugural sermon from Luke chapter 4, the gospel lesson. Right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, which has enabled him to preach and do these powerful works. What is Peter, how does Peter summarize Jesus' whole earthly life? He says he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God is with him. The healings that Jesus did, the exorcisms he did, they're part of the good news. They're part of the gospel. They're part of the gospel of shalom and peace, because the gospel of shalom and peace means a plundering of the kingdom of darkness. It means the new creation has arrived. Jesus heals people in anticipation of the day when all bodies will be healed. And he casts out demons in anticipation of the doom of the powers on the last day. So all of the public historical ministry, of all of it, Peter says, we are witnesses. We saw it with our eyes. But you're reading eyewitness testimony here. And then he continues the narration. He was baptized. He went about doing good. He healed people. He performed exorcisms, but they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Right? The sign, according to Deuteronomy 21, that you're accursed. But God raised him up on the third day. The resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of our hope. Our faith is in vain if Christ is not raised, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Right? We are the most pitiable men. But if we do believe this, right, and if Jesus is raised from the dead, and he is, then that's the best news, right? It means all will be well. All will be well. All will be well in Gaza, in Israel, in the Ukraine. All will be well. If Jesus is raised from the dead. And that's at the heart of our profession. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And to assure you, to assure you, to assure the church of all ages that God raised him, 
he was made to appear, Peter says. Peter says, not only was he raised, he appeared to us, not to all people, but to these chosen, authorized witnesses, to the apostles who were with him from the beginning. They're not the gospel, but we wouldn't have the gospel without them. We were witnesses, Peter says, get this, who ate and drank with him after he rose. Demonstrating, among other things, that he didn't rise as a ghost, but in concrete bodily form, as you yourself will eat and drink with him in the new creation. That's what's anticipated there. So, step back for a second. Ask yourself this. What is Peter doing here? Well, he's, he's preaching, right? And, and what is the, how does the preaching look? It looks like a narration. He's narrating the gospel. What does that look like? Well, it look, it's rooted in the peace promised in the prophets. Coming first to Israel and then out to the nations. In Jesus Christ, through the whole life of Christ, culminating in his death and resurrection, sealed by these chosen apostolic witnesses. It's not complicated, right? Narrating, declaring, sharing that astounding news, that singular life, that is the church's unique, central calling. Now, the church will end up doing some other things, but this is the heart and soul of the church's mission and calling. These apostolic witnesses, Christ commanded, look at this in verse 42, to preach. He commanded us to preach to the people. And to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Here's another thing that that might not be instinctive for us. And this is an opportunity. We always have this opportunity, of course, to let the scripture kind of reform our logic and our instincts to its logic and instincts. We already saw one big thing. Oh, because God is one. That must mean there's no impartiality with respect to nations or salvation. It must be rooted in the very being of God. Here's another one. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, he's going to be the judge of the living and the dead. So it's important. This is part of the gospel for Peter, that he is going to be the judge of the living and the dead. The one who loves us, the one who died for us, is also the one who will love, who will judge the living and the dead. This means, among other things, right, there's an end, a telos, as the Greeks would put it, a a terminal point to history. It's all going somewhere. Without this, he shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. What are we left with? Right? We're left with sound and fury (laughs) signifying nothing. Without this judgment, really, who needs the gospel even? If there's no coming judgment to judge the living and the dead, what good is the gospel? The reality that Jesus, risen from the dead, will come in glory to judge the living and the dead, that's part of the gospel. That's what I would call the eschatological heart of the gospel. But but what I want to see here is get the apostolic logic. It goes like this. Christ is risen. Therefore, he shall judge the living and the dead. In Acts 17, Paul makes exactly this point a little bit later in the book of Acts. At the Areopagus in Athens, he says, God has fixed a day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given proof by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is proof that Jesus will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. How does the creed go? He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come in glory to judge the living and the dead. So we preach and testify that the crucified Christ, in fulfillment of the prophets, is now raised and he shall come in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now this judgment, it's the last thing, but it's not the last word. You might call it the bleak backdrop, which makes the good news good. The gospel is this, right? The gospel is this, that the judge of all has become the one judged for all in Jesus Christ. That's the good news for us. In one sense, the judgment to be rendered on the last day over your head in life has already been rendered at the cross, The judge has become the judged for your sake. That's the gospel. And in verse 43, Peter says this, all the prophets bear witness to this, right? All the prophets. Again, these Hebrew prophets smashing racial and national boundaries bear witness to the fact that everyone who believes, Peter says, in him receives forgiveness through his name. That's the gospel. The second point here, briefly, is the Spirit. So Peter's preaching. He just said everyone who believes receives forgiveness. And then verse 44, this is what happens. While Peter was still speaking, so the Holy Spirit's descent here just interrupts the sermon. Probably like some of you feel would happen on occasion. So somehow in the middle of that sermon, while he's still speaking, without an altar call, without an invocation or an invitation without any human, you know, manipulation. There's no altar playing, you know, no organ playing soft and low. The spirit just falls. Because the spirit's free and blows where he wants to and when. He fell on all who heard the word, we're told. Again, notice the spirit works in and with the word. Preaching, spirit. And as, it's just like Pentecost. That's why the sermon's titled The Gentile Pentecost. All who were assembled received the Spirit. And at this point in Acts, there's been a Pentecost event for Jews from every nation, for Samaritans, and now for Gentiles. The ascended, raised, coming Jesus pours out His Spirit even to the ends of the earth. He does it as his word is proclaimed. That's why we support missions. Missionaries. That's why we are missionaries. So, and by the way, notice this. What happens is indisputable. Like you don't have to guess that maybe the Holy Spirit was doing something. You don't need a little, you don't have to divine it, right? The Jewish believers who came with Peter are just amazed. So however the Spirit fell, everyone in the room knew what happened. And it's the reverse of Pentecost. Gentiles are speaking and extolling God, and Jews are hearing it in their language. So what is it a sign of? It's a sign of Jew-Gentile reconciliation. And our common participation in the life of God through the Spirit. 
Think about this. I mean, it's impossible. There's no way there could be any second-class citizens or any two tracks of anything in the body of Christ. Right? Paul says to the Roman Christians, a predominantly Gentile congregation, he says, you are heirs of God. What precisely could you be lacking? <laughs> like, it, it, where could a deficiency be? You are heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ because you have the Spirit. You know what he says in 1 Corinthians 3? He says to, again, now this is a Gentile congregation. All things are yours, whether life or death or the world, or things present, or things to come. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. That's true of all believers. And this is a sign of that. Notice what they're doing when the Spirit falls. This happened at Pentecost, and it happens here at the Gentile Pentecost. They are extolling and proclaiming the wonders of God. The gift, we should not lose sight of this, right? The gift of the Spirit engenders worship. So Peter declares, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Spirit just as we did? Apparently, he didn't think that having the Spirit meant you didn't need water baptism. If you have the thing, the Spirit, they should get the sign. For the sign seals and affirms the thing. Now, this little momentous event is, is, is going to lead Peter into some rocky waters, right? He's going to go back and report to the Jerusalem church, and they're not, initially, they're not going to be too happy with him. But he goes back to them, and he says, if, God, if then God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord, who was I to stand in God's way? Right? When the Spirit's moving, when the Spirit's poured out, the first thing you want to do is make sure you're not in the way. Who was I to stand in God's way? Right? And then at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Peter will put it this way. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. What a beautiful thing, right? This is true Catholicity. And this is what makes the Christian faith a global faith, and not, again, not a mere sect or an ethnic cult. So hear these words from the Apostle Paul again. Hear them with fresh ears and realize how radical they would have been. There is one body. There's one body. There's not two tiers or two tracks or two any. There's one body because there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, because there is one Lord. There's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of all who's over all, who's through all, and who's in all. And we'll shortly see there's one table. So what would they do? These Gentiles and Cornelius' house, they're baptized into the name of Jesus, the name that was proclaimed to them, the name through which we and they Receive the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of our hearts. The name of the one through whom comes the good news of shalom, of reconciliation, of the gospel of peace. Amen.